dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we will talk about the Black TikTok dance creator Strike, which is a viral campaign that's aiming to bring awareness to systemic inequities in that online space. We will discuss two kind of surprising changes in ballet world leadership that raise questions about how ballet companies share information and how much of that information they choose to share. And then we'll do a little bit of a follow-up to our conversation from a couple episodes back about Mackenzie Scott's major grants to dance organizations, now that we've heard more about what those grants are and how companies are planning to use them. Um, But before all that, we actually have a little sort of amuse-bouche for you, because as we've mentioned, we're getting ready to launch the Dance Edit Extra, our new premium interview series, which we're very excited about. And we can announce now that our first episode, the very first interview in the series, will be with the absolutely brilliant choreographer Andrea Miller. And I just talked to Andrea. We discussed the creation of her upcoming sculpture and sound and performance installation, You Are Here, which will be presented on the Lincoln Center campus later this month, all over the Lincoln Center campus. Right now, we're going to play an exclusive clip from that interview to give you a sense of what you can expect from the Dance Edit Extra. Just a little context, at this point in the interview, we're talking about the fact that You Are Here is an inclusive project. Um, it's designed so that all guests, including those with disabilities, can experience it. So here's the clip. So how did that idea of inclusivity sort of shape the development of the work? two-part question. The second part is, how do you see inclusion as part of your creative philosophy more broadly? You know, this is, I think, one of the things that is really important about getting outside of the theater, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think now theater is becoming a little bit more aware of this. But when you make a work for public space, kids are there, seniors are there. People with accessibility needs are there. People who don't want to see you are there. (laughs) People who wanted to sit down in that chair that you're now dancing in are there. So um, it really just totally changes, you know, the your status. Which is when you're on the stage, you're you're in you're dominating the space. You are telling people to sit down and listen and watch. Um, and obviously you can totally play with that. And I think that I, you know, I'm, I described it in, in, in very cartoonish ways, but when you, when you make a work for a public space, you have to think about everybody you have to do your best to try to think about everybody. And, um, and that really excites me and it inspires me. And I have a lot more that I want to do and, and learn with that. And I'm just at the beginning. This is just the beginning, um, but it's some. It's a space that is. I want to. I want to be um, because that's exactly where the movement that I'm making and the conversations that it sort of um, it requires are pushing me to grow um, and make more connection with our our world and our lives. Seriously, that is just a tiny taste of that interview, and that interview is a full-on meal. So we really hope that you'll join us for this Dance Edit Extra adventure to hear more from Andrea and then from all the other artists who are shaping the dance world's headlines who we'll be talking to. You can find out more about the series at thedanceedit.com. All right, 
Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, beginning with Lil Nas X's Kiss Heard Around the World. Yeah, so the final weekend of Pride Month was absolutely sweltering. And you know what else was? Lil Nas X on the BET Awards. Uh, Well played. Well played. The BET Awards were Sunday night. Uh, Of course, Lil Nas X broke the internet yet again with his performance. Uh, Other dance-driven performances included Silk Sonic, Migos, and Cardi B. Uh, If you missed the awards, I believe they're still watchable in their entirety on YouTube. And BET also put up a video collecting all the performances in one handy-dandy place. And Sean Bankhead choreographed that Lil Nas X performance, by the way. I just, more shoutouts for Sean Bankhead, more shoutouts for Lil Nas X, always, forever. So good. Okay, the Royal Ballet has had to cancel its performances in London after a COVID-19 outbreak forced a number of dancers to quarantine. The company's Summer Draftwork series, which was set to occur July 1st through 3rd at the Royal Opera House's Lindbury Theatre, is being postponed until next season. So... Uh, just a little reminder that we aren't completely out of the woods yet in terms of this pandemic. Yeah. Worth noting, though, a lot of the main stage performances are, for the moment, still going forward at the Royal. True. Uh, and Lil Wayne's Uproar Hip Hop Festival has announced that they're adding a dance competition to the lineup this August. It will be hosted by choreographer Samantha Long, who's joined on the judges panel by Lil Buck and John Boogs. Interested dancer duos can submit videos now via Instagram. Twelve semifinalist teams will go to LA in July, and after a competition to narrow the field, six duos will compete on August 13th. Rules for entry are available at uproar420.com. The Great White Way has officially opened Springsteen on Broadway, Bruce Springsteen's one-man show, opened at full capacity to a fully vaccinated crowd last weekend at the St. James Theater. I have my tickets. I'm going in August. Oh, fun. Um, I know. I'm very excited. Very excited. Um, Obviously, we know there's no dancing in this show, but it's still exciting news and a sign of what's coming. Yeah, this is also not dance news, but... I just love the New York Times profile of the usher who's been an usher at that theater, at the Springsteen on Broadway Theater for the past 20 years, and who was just so thrilled to get back to work. Like, mm. this reopening means so much for the performers, of course, but also for this whole ecosystem of Broadway workers. Yeah. And the White House has announced President Biden's nominees to the National Council on the Arts, and we were delighted to see that they included Apollo Theater executive producer and all-around brilliant theater and television director Camilla Forbes and Dance Place executive and artistic director Christopher K. Morgan. Now, they'll still need to be approved by the Senate, but there's no reason to believe that that process will go anything but smoothly. Huge congratulations. Yeah, that's major. The New York Public Library for the Performing Arts Jerome Robbins Dance Division has just announced its latest class of dance research fellows exploring the theme of dance and democracy. This year's fellows include Tommy Wahid Evans, Petra Cuppers, Zave Marto Harjono, Ariel Narison, Jason Samuel Smith, and Hui Wang Zhang. Each fellow will receive a stipend of $7,500 and a research period from July 1st to December 31st of this year to complete their work. They'll be able to showcase their research in either a presentation or performance at a day-long symposium on Friday, January 28th next year. Those symposiums are always just such treats. Like, they just have so many resources at the Jerome Robbins Dance Division, and seeing Mm -hmm. what these different artists do when given access is Absolutely incredible. 
Kind of swinging back around to Broadway, MJ the Musical announced the departure of leading man Ephraim Sykes, who you might know from being in the original Broadway ensemble of Hamilton or from a star-making turn in Ain't Too Proud. Uh, Ephraim stepped back from the musical to work on a feature film and taking his place as Miles Frost, a newcomer who will be making his Broadway debut in the role of Michael Jackson when MJ starts previews in December. So, like, yay, Ephraim, go get that Hollywood money, (laughs) but also... I really wanted to see you in this part. (laughs) (laughs) But also, congratulations to Miles Frost. That's a huge break. And also, it's almost, it's sort of a miracle that this show is somehow still happening. Given everything. (laughs) Given everything. Yes. Bigger picture context as well. Yes. The trailer for a new Bill T. Jones documentary has just dropped. The film entitled, Can You Bring It? Bill T. Jones and D-Man in the Waters centers around Jones's signature work created at the height of the AIDS crisis as he stages it on a group of young dancers today. Can You Bring It will be released in select theaters starting July 16th. And I have actually never seen D-Man in the Waters, I'm embarrassed to say. <gasps> I know it is supposed to be... Fix that as soon as possible. I, I mean, you still get to experience it for the first time. Just... Yeah, yeah. Make sure you have Kleenex. <laughs> NBC's upcoming Annie Live has added Harry Connick Jr. to the cast, playing Sir Oliver Daddy Warbucks opposite Taraji P. Henson's Miss Hannigan. The live made-for-TV musical, which has Sergio Trujillo attached to choreograph, is set to air December 2nd. And I believe they're still looking for their Annie. A new Latinx dance movie entitled The Way You Move is in the works, directed by Alberto Belli. The movie follows an inner-city teenager whose punishment for getting in trouble at school is to join the ballroom dance club. And, of course, he realizes how much he loves ballroom dance once he gets there. So filming starts this fall. Very curious to see who the choreographer for that project will end up being. Yeah, I did not see any (laughs) names attached, so we'll keep you posted. Uh, And Netflix and Shondaland have teamed up with UK experiential company Secret Cinema to produce an IRL Regency-style ball inspired by the runaway hit Bridgerton. The immersive soiree will feature a string quartet playing arrangements of pop songs for the dancing as well as life drawing, card playing, and apparently boxing. (laughs) The event will take place at a yet-to-be-disclosed location in London beginning in November. Tickets are set to go on sale for the Secret Ball on Tuesday, July 6th, what if I just went to London for this? Like, seriously, all I want is to attend a Regency ball, except maybe I'll wear like a suit and tails instead of a gown. I don't know. I just like... I mean, Courtney, you and I were saying we both have our outfits already planned. We do. They're um, already in our closets. Truly. And I just, I want to be Kara Knightley in the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice movie. That's all I want. <laughs> Can I make or, this or, happen? Or Gentleman Jack. Either, and either or. I would love to be Gentleman Jack. That is truly the goal. <laughs> I might be mixing my historical eras there, but. (laughs) Oh, all right. So in our first Deeper Dive segment today, we'd like to discuss a viral campaign that's been going on for a couple weeks now, but it recently exploded into the mainstream news. And that is the Black TikTok creator strike, which is a widespread protest designed to raise awareness about inequities in the online space. Um, essentially, Black TikTok dance creators have been refusing to choreograph a dance to Megan Thee Stallion's very dance-ready new song, Thought to force non-Black users to come up with their own dances and thus prove how essential Black creators are to the platform. 
And the goals of this movement certainly include ensuring that dance creators get proper credit and compensation, which are problems that we've discussed before on the podcast. But it goes beyond that, too. I mean, at the root of this campaign are even larger issues of power and ownership. I have some questions because I'm not on TikTok and I don't know a whole lot about it. <laughs> I think I'm showing my age here. It's okay, Amy. I'm not on TikTok either because I know I will never, <laughs> I will never emerge again if I go down that rabbit hole. Right. I know it's huge and it's very influential and everyone's on it, but um, I am not. So I'm just curious, like, how do people make money off of TikTok? Is it like Instagram with like influencers? I know there's some sort of like fund set up with TikTok. Like, how does that work? So from my understanding, there are a few different ways to make money off TikTok. And one of them is similar to what's happening on Instagram, where you can land influencer brand deals and get sponsorships that way. But TikTok also has a creator fund that pays creators directly based on the number of views and engagements they're getting with their videos. So it is a little bit different in that respect. Where things get thorny when you're talking about views and engagement is there's been a lot of well-publicized issues that have arisen with TikTok of are Black creators getting shoved to essentially the back of the queue when it comes to what the app is putting forward for people to discover and engage with. And when you have that algorithmic bias already in place, it makes it a lot easier for white creators who take the dances of Black choreographers and don't necessarily credit them. It makes it a lot easier for them to blow up and either benefit from that fund or from other sponsorships than the Black creators who are actually responsible for the work themselves. So it is interesting to note that the strike is having a real effect on the online landscape. Um, There are a lot fewer videos than might be expected set to the Megan Thee Stallion song. And a lot of people are saying that's because white creators don't have a dance trend to copy because black creators aren't making Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I think the TikTok post about this that's gotten so much traction and attention is uh, Eric Lewis Uh, posted one where he has the track playing in the background and starts out seeming like, okay, here comes the dance track. And then he flips off the camera, walks off, and the screen says, psych, this app would be nothing without Black people. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't make the point, I don't know what does. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting because some people have pointed out that This isn't a true quote-unquote strike because many of these Black creators are still posting other content. But Mm -hmm. what it is, is a labor protest. This is about calling attention to the exploitation of Black labor, which is a problem that goes well beyond TikTok and also well back into history. I mean, Black Americans have gone on strike to extract fair compensation for their work since before the Civil War. I think what's different here is the scale of influence of these particular workers, because the influence that these online creators have is massive. Yeah, absolutely. And it grows exponentially. And also, I think it's making it much more visible and clear. Something that's been going on in culture for decades and decades and decades is Mm -hmm. Black creators do the work, and then a white creator will come along and say, this is really cool elevate it or appropriate it, depending on how they actually handled the issue. And then it becomes acceptable. It becomes mainstream because a white creator put their hands on this. We see this with African-American vernacular English. We see this with, for example, twerking. It This has mm-hmm. been happening and been happening and been happening. And the difference right now is that in part because of the way TikTok works, there's actually more of a platform now for this absence to be noticed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Has has TikTok come out with any kind of like statement or anything about this? Have they acknowledged what's going on? They issued a comment to the New York Times for their story that was sort of anodyne and 
uh, unlikely to satisfy most people, I guess, is the way I'd put it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the questions, the bigger questions here are sort of how do we protect this whole class of workers who are creating what is obviously a very valuable product, but not necessarily reaping the financial benefits of it for starters? How do we transfer some of the enormous power that the social platforms themselves have back to the creators and particularly the creators of color that are driving them? Um, That's sort of what's at the root of all of this. Okay, so in our next segment, we want to talk about two pieces of Ballet World news that dropped this week. Um, Or actually, we want to talk less about the news items themselves than about how they were conveyed. So first, last week, Oregon Ballet Theater issued a press release saying that its artistic director of eight years, Kevin Irving, had resigned. And then earlier this week, San Francisco Ballet similarly announced that its executive director of just two years, Kelly Tweeddale, had stepped down. No explanations were given by either company for these departures. Um, Irving did issue a letter of his own clarifying that he had been asked to resign. And shortly after that, Irving's life partner, Niccolo Fonte, who had been resident choreographer at OBT, clarified that he too would be leaving the company, although initially the OBT's board chair had said that he'd be staying on. So we're just going to start by saying right off the bat that we have no further details about what exactly happened behind the scenes at either of these organizations, and we're not here to speculate or start rumors. Um, But we do want to talk about how these announcements reflect a general lack of transparency at pretty much all major ballet companies, and about how that sort of like nothing to see here opacity shapes and warps ballet culture. Yeah, so I feel like I'm seeing a few different issues sort of collide here. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, okay, as private individuals, what we choose and do not choose to share publicly about our lives and our careers and decisions about that, that should be just that, a choice. And becoming a semi-public figure should not divest you of that right to privacy. But... At the same time, ballet's well-documented history of collectively just sweeping things under the rug and operating with all the transparency of a well-layered romantic tutu means that when explanations aren't given, the assumption and the suspicion, deserved or not, will be that there is something being hidden. Mm -hmm. So how do we navigate these things that, okay, it's possible that these were just personal decisions made by the individuals and the companies are respecting their privacy versus, okay, is there something going on here because there's been no explanation given? And typically speaking, historically, we can point at all these instances where no explanation given was because there was something to hide. Something was up. Yeah, sorry, I have to go back to your well-layered romantic tutu thing, which was brilliant, because I just want to clarify, we're not talking about a diaphanous serenade tutu, we're talking about a full-on love all multiple layers of heavy tulle <laughs> tutu. That's where we're going here. It would have been very easy for them to just say that the, you know, the board wants to go in a different direction or something. I mean, that can say a lot without saying, divulging everything, if it is the truth, Mm -hmm. you know, but by not explaining anything, it kind of just, sometimes that can backfire, I think, and lead to just misinformation, um, rumor mongering, etc. People start to kind of speculating on what, what happened, what didn't happen. And and I, I agree with you, Courtney, I think there is, you know, on the one hand, these are often private conversations, they're often heavy negotiating going on. They often involve a lot of people, large boards of 
you know, making these decisions. Or sometimes it's just, you know, one person who is unhappy and wants to leave, but, you know, doesn't want to air their dirty laundry or whatnot. But yeah, it does. That That's as we've seen in the past, you know, that's not always the case. There was a lot of confusion over Liam Scarlett's departure at the, the Royal Ballet that was not really explained that I think left a lot of people really confused and angry, you know, and and so it I think it does help to be transparent at times about these things. Now, as someone, I mean, I've experienced lots of leadership changes at you know, places where I've worked before. Um, you know, director changes. I think I worked for three or four different people at one company I danced for in a very, you know, in an 8-year period. And I know some of those departures were not friendly and others were just you know, I need a change. But that wasn't really shared with the public. And there was nothing really sinister going on. I just don't, you know, I mean, like, I don't know if it needed to be shared with the public so much. But but it is kind of interesting, because you're asking the public for support and donations to your organization. So, right. you, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line of what's shared and what isn't shared? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a problem that goes well beyond ballet. I feel like this tends to happen at most organizations as they grow larger and then end up becoming more bureaucratic. There's this focus on like protecting the company mm-hmm. rather than thinking first about what's best for the employees or what's best for the wider community that the company operates in. Um, and ballet companies tend to be the dense organizations with the most resources. So they are more likely to have more bureaucracy, which we could do a whole separate episode on that. But it does seem like yeah, at least a little bit more transparency about why and how these companies make, especially leadership decisions, because those have such a profound effect on the state of Mm -hmm. the company. I think that would help people both inside and outside the organization, maybe identify potentially problematic aspects of the decision making process, just because the less insular they are, the more fair they might end up being just more voices, more eyes, more air. Um, in that space could be helpful. Well, and I think also, like, as you pointed out, Amy, oftentimes they're soliciting donations. They also want to get butts and seats. And I think mm-hmm. that increasingly as, uh, you know, trying to court, quote unquote, younger audiences and new audiences and more diverse audiences, I think people my, of my generation, people of the generation below me, like, it's important to us that who we are supporting are also operating in ethical ways Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to support this organization and you see okay they're not really being transparent i don't really know what's going on here which way is your opinion going to lean are you going to roll the dice or are you going to say you know what i'm going to put my support towards something that i have more faith that things are being done ethically that the people who work here are being treated well and that they are actually working to serve their community the way that they say that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, these organizations do have responsibilities to the communities that they serve, for sure. All right, so finally today, we want to do a quick follow-up on the grants that Mackenzie Scott made to a whole bunch of diverse and historically underfunded dense companies, because we've now heard a bit about how, first of all, how much of each of these dance groups actually received, and then also about how each company is planning to use the funds. And pretty much everything we've heard just further proves how hugely transformative these gifts, these unrestricted, unearmarked gifts are going to be. Yeah, I mean, unrestricted grants, 
game changers for any individual, for any organization. And in the amounts that we are talking about, like, this is bananas. It's just bananas in the best way Um, to do a quick little roll call here of like kind of more of the details that we've gotten. uh, Collage Dance Collective received three million dollars. Dance Theater of Harlem received ten million dollars. Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater received 20 million, which they say is going to go towards commissioning new work, producing new productions of existing Ailey rep, uh, teacher training and Ailey school scholarships. Uh, $10 million to Ballet Hispanico. They're currently consulting with their board, but artistic director Eduardo Villaro is looking at bolstering the company's endowment fund and providing scholarships. And $3 million to Urban Bushwoman, which uh, the artistic director, Joale, uh, made a comment in one of the articles covering this saying that part of sustainability means investing in people. Yeah. I loved that. And she had this fantastic quote that said, uh, you do brilliant work on two cents of prayer mm-hmm. and spit. And there's a certain creativity that comes out of that, of what you have to do. But there's also a price that is paid. And I wish I could have a mini Jawale just to like ride around in my pocket and say like <laughs> wonderful, brilliant, wise things to me all the time. But yeah. And then I think like another thing that got me in these news articles that like really got me was Anna Glass from Dance Theater of Harlem talking about the 10 million gift that DTH got saying it will allow the company to say we have a future. We know we can exist 50 years from now. I'm getting choked up saying that again. Yeah. I also just want to add, Courtney, that Lions Ballet got $5 million. Yes. I knew I was missing someone on this list. Thank you, Amy. But going back to, to what you said, I mean, it was it's like District of Harlem, for example, is they're, they're so beloved, but it wasn't really that long ago that the company had to take like an eight year break. And mm-hmm. I mean, I remember being in New York taking, you know, dancing and seeing what that did to a lot of dancers careers. You know, uh, I mean, for some of them, it really altered the course of their career or it ended their careers. And, you know, it was just so heartbreaking. So something like this, that really just sort of solidifies that they have a strong future ahead, especially after this pandemic, mm-hmm. is is really just such wonderful news. Yeah, the gift of sustainability. That's really what mm-hmm. it is. All right. That is somehow our episode for this week. Um, thank you, everyone, <laughs> for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.